I will first offer a little bit of a confession as we begin together here this morning. I'm feeling just a little nervous as we get ready to dive into this sermon. Uh, first of all, I feel like there's two things we're facing. Number one, I'm concerned how many may be having a Penn State hangover from last night, uh, just and recovering from that uh, exciting game. So I, I mean, our minds might still be there, first of all. But then secondly, on top of that, I think for us to get the most out of our time together this morning, I'm going to have to ask us to really do our best to, to focus and to track together. Because as we start to unpack what we're going to look at in Genesis 3, uh, it's going to take us really being aware of, of those elements. And we don't even have time this morning to fully unpack that. But hopefully if we can get the idea of it, we'll take it with us. And that's where the impact is really going to be felt. So I just want to kind of put that out there for us this morning. And in that way, I almost want to say, let's, let's tread carefully or put fair warning out there. But I'm really excited uh, as we share together on this here this morning. As we start to get our minds around the scripture, kind of even lead into that, the first thing I want to do is show us a number of pictures. And they're pretty standard things. You're going to know immediately what they are. So here's the first picture that we're going to put up. You can clearly see that's money. Money is so often a good thing. It provides what we need uh, when we need it, and it helps provide resources for others. So there's money. The next thing we're going to put up there is one of my favorite things, food in general. But you can see this is a good plate of food. Not only do we need food to live, but you know that healthy food helps us to thrive in all that we do. The next thing that we're going to show you here is a couple of dice. And uh, if you're part of my family, we love using dice for things like Yahtzee or especially Monopoly. That is one of our favorite games. And getting together with family and friends, you can use dice in a wonderful way. I'm also going to show you this uh, as you look up here. There's something about using your gifts and your skills and your work to contribute to life and society. And it gives us a sense of worth and dignity in what we do, but it also allows society itself to thrive. And then we've got a couple of folks here, and really they're modeling you know, some sneakers here for us, but really these are folks, they, they like to be in shape. They like to take care of themselves and exercise. We need that so that our physical bodies can be as healthy as possible. And then the last one I'm going to show you here this morning is that we are grateful that in our world, and especially in our culture, we have the gift of medicine which can be used both to take away pain that we may be in, but even more importantly, when we're sick or ill, help us to experience health uh, with the right kinds of medicine uh, to be able to take. So I want to ask you to keep those pictures in mind. You know, why am I showing you all of those pictures? What is it that they have in common? I would argue for our purposes here this morning that every one of those images I just showed you, each one of those items has the potential for allowing flourishing in our world. That is, with the right power, as we've been talking about these last few weeks, with humble power behind them, each one of those elements I just showed you can allow for amazing good, amazing creativity, amazing flourishing in our world. And this is how God intended it to be. God intended the world to function in humble power. So that again, those created things that we just looked, looked at, each of them used in their right way might contribute to the world, make it a better place. We've been going for a number of weeks throughout this series on humble power. You might remember from a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 1, and we talked about what it meant to be created in God's image. We, human beings, were made in God's image, which means we've been given a certain amount of power and influence in humility, for bearing the image of God. 
to reflect the nature of God Almighty. Now, I don't know if we realize it or make the connection, but this is really, really good news. I mean, think about it. God made you, God made me with the ability to help the world be a better place, to lend to creation, to help the world flourish. But here's the thing. Most days when I meet most people, I don't know that I'd describe them as flourishing. They seem to be doing okay, but most people seem to be trying just to survive or get by. But I wouldn't describe them as flourishing. When I ask most people, how are you doing? Again, it's more of a surviving, I'm getting through the day. Only occasionally do I meet the person who would say they're flourishing as God intended. I wonder as we're sitting here right now in your own mind, you don't need to say anything. How are you doing? Are you surviving? Just glad you made it here this morning. Are you doing worse than surviving? Like it's horrible. Or do you feel like you are flourishing? Like you are being used by God for what God intended to make the world, to make creation a better place. I wonder. I cannot overstate how significant this is. Every one of us created with the very imprint of God upon us. Each one of us designed with a humble power. And God's humble power is always creative and relational in nature. That is, it's something that benefits everyone. Everyone receives part of the goodness. Everyone benefits. Nobody's hurt with God's humble power. That means people are not exploited over each other in God's humble power. It's cooperative in nature. Now, that might sound good. That might sound right, especially here in church. You might even think, well, it should be that way where nobody is hurt, where there's always cooperation. But let's be honest. That is hard to imagine, especially in the world we live in. It would be great if we all cooperated and got along and used our power for good together. We just don't operate that way. Look in our world. Everyone is not flourishing. Despite enough food for everyone in the world, millions starve. Despite enough money for everyone in the world, millions live in squalor. Despite enough resources for all, war and violence rage in our world. And especially right now in our own political climate, we can barely even imagine this idea of a cooperative nature. We use power, we humans to create winners and losers, those in control, those not in control, those who are victors and those who are victims. And we might start to wonder, so all right, God, this humble power idea, it sounds great, but is it even really possible? Are you being at all realistic, Matt? And what happened? It's not as God intended it to be. I mean, you go back to Genesis, and there was Adam and Eve, and it was all flourishing, and it was so good. It was so beautiful. It was so wonderful. We see that God's humble power was giving, and all of creation was thriving. We see a brief glimpse of it at the very start of the scripture. So what happened that made it no longer the case so often in our world? I'll tell you what happened. Genesis 3 happened. In Genesis 3... God's humble power was distorted by reaching for an idol. And the result was this distortion that has affected all of creation, and we call that sin. Here's a very technical definition, if you will, of idolatry. Idolatry is the biblical name given for the human capacity for creative power run amok. 
I told you a very technical term here this morning, and I appreciate a lot of authors as we're going to be going through here this morning, but especially Andy Crouch. And remember, in Genesis, again, human beings are vested by the Creator with the ability to make something wonderful in the world, to give voice to the meaning of creation itself. You could argue our most fundamental task as humans is to help unfold the world's possibilities and deep meaningfulness. Think of a rose literally begin to opening and blossom that God uses us to create in a world in such a way that God's identity is unfolded out into the rest of the world. God gives us that call and ability. That's amazing if you stop and think about it. It really actually begins to blow our minds if you stop and think about it. But with idolatry, this capacity, this power for making something great in the world, for contributing to the rest of the world, it becomes distorted. And it happens right here in Genesis chapter 3. So if you haven't already, I want to invite you to look with me in Genesis chapter 3. Pastor Rick shared it with us a few moments ago, but I want to invite us to look at it. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And remember, when we start here in Genesis 3, the setting is as close to perfect as possible. I mean, it is literally heaven on earth. There's no sin. There's no misuse of power. These are good times. These are happy times for Adam and Eve. This is the setting that the serpent enters into. Now, it's interesting, when you look in the account here in Genesis 3, by all accounts, we are not led to believe that Adam and Eve are surprised that the servant shows up. It would seem that they are aware that this servant has existed before. We don't hear of the servant and hear like this gasp from Adam and Eve of like, where did you come from? I mean, it just seems like they pick up and they've known each other somehow. And then the servant, it's described in Genesis 3, 1, if you look, at least in this version that we're using, it's described as more crafty than any of the other animals that God had formed and named. Now, this is a peculiar word choice, the word for crafty, for two reasons. Because first of all, crafty in Hebrew comes from a word called arum. That's actually a play on the word in Hebrew for the word naked, which would be arumamim. So you could almost argue that this wordplay suggests that humans might be exploited, exposed, made vulnerable at times to shrewd or crafty elements in the world. That's often language related to temptation. The second thing about the word crafty is this. It also seems purposely ambiguous because crafty also means clever or cunning or shrewd. And in the Bible, this word crafty, I think this is really interesting. Crafty in other places in scripture is used to describe human beings, like Job 5.12, Proverbs 12.16. But there's no other biblical writer who ever uses the word crafty to describe another animal. So in our language, you and I would say, oh, you sly fox kind of thing. Or you're wise as an owl kind of thing. That doesn't happen in the Bible, except for here where there's this crafty serpent, which almost, again, highlights the nature of this animal. So this crafty serpent appears, and what this serpent does is he lays the ultimate power move before Adam and Eve. You can just hear him, can't you? Genesis 3.1, you can look specifically at that verse. We can translate a little bit, and you can just hear the serpent to Adam and Eve. God is so uptight, isn't he? Relax a little, Adam and Eve. Live a little, Adam and Eve. Let me get this straight. 
did God really say that you are not to eat of any eat fruit of any tree? But come on, that seems, that seems a bit harsh, really? And the question is a clever one because if you engage it, if you start to answer the question, a simple yes or no answer just will not do. If one decides to enter into the conversation, you have to begin to unpack beyond a yes or a no. And the you that's used here in the plural in Hebrew, it's implying both a man and a woman. So the question is not just being asked to Eve. It's being asked to Eve and her partner, Adam. And now for the first time, Eve and therefore Adam as well, they begin to realize, wait a minute. I have power to decide for myself what will happen. For Adam and for Eve, even though they already have God-given power, remember, they're created in God's image, they start to think, wait a minute, I can do what I want, and then I'll have even more. At least that's what they think. And the serpent plays on this power issue by lifting up two power elements presented to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And they're just too good to resist. Because the crafty serpent points out, number one, you will not surely die. And number two, not only will you not die, but then you will be like God. Now those two power promises, when they're whispered at just the right moment, by a cunning adversary. They can wind their way around any human heart and bind it to any created thing or choice. And in that process, displace devotion to God for our power and give it to a created thing for power. So here's the essence of idolatry. Idols displace our devotion to God as the source of our power, to devotion of a created thing for our power. And it happens all the time to us with the choices we make. It happens with that first decision of who really gets to call the shots in our lives. And we start to think to ourselves, did God really say I don't have to or can't do that? And we fill in the blank and we rationalize, and we start to take a second glimpse, just like Eve. And then here's what we discover. We go ahead and eventually take that first drink of alcohol. We take that first glimpse of pornography. We cheat on that test. We lie on that tax return. We talk to that person who is showing way more interest in us than just being a friend, even though they know we're married. We take that first pill, and we know we shouldn't. And we think, I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to do this anyhow, and it's probably going to kill me. I'm going to get in trouble. Something awful is going to happen. And we do it, and the lightning didn't strike. To our surprise, indulging in that thing did not kill us. And we realize, wait a minute, I can choose and I like this, and I can call the shots. And there's a sort of great feeling, and it's, it's like I can control this. I can have power over this. I can do the right thing most of the time and do this other little thing on the side, and it feels good, and I can do as much or take as much as I want. And I'm not dying in the process. The serpent was right. I can be like God, and I'm not dying by doing the wrong thing. I can be like God. And those words, you will not die and you shall be like God, ring through our minds. And we're lured like the serpent 
into taking a single bite of the forbidden fruit. And we realize as much power as God has given us, we think we can have even more. We can take matters into our own hands. We can have the power to do what we want and not be limited anymore by God restricting us. That's what every idol suggests, that life apart from God is within reach, within our grasp, available for our self-control. It suggests we have the power to create a God rather than serve a God. That fruit looked so good to Adam and Eve. It represented freedom and power to them. It would give them knowledge of good and evil on top of everything they already had. So finally, Adam and Eve turn their allegiance away from God, and they reach. They reach for something they think will give them even more power than they already have. In their minds, do you hear what's happening? They elevated the fruit to something way more valuable than what it really was, more than what God had already promised them. That's what idols do. They promise to give us more than we have. They let us think that we're in control, that if we reach for them, if we choose them, they'll give us more power of some kind. But here's the thing when it comes to idols. Idols suggest that life apart from God is within reach, within our grasp, available for our control. But true life apart from God is never, ever within our grasp. And here's the irony, and what great irony it is. We can only even indulge this fantasy of any idol at all because God gives God's continuous power to us. On the one hand, idolatry results because of, number one, the unique capacity and power that God has given us. We couldn't even attempt to do this if God didn't allow it. Give us the ability to do it. Remember, we're created to create with God. And the truth is, there's absolutely no other creature in the world that harbors ambition to be like God, except for you and I, except we human beings. Think about this. The next time you go to the zoo, or if you're at your house even with your pet, or if you go to a farm, but let's take the zoo for example. Imagine sidling up to the elephant, and you whisper, hey, elephant, you can be like God. Imagine moving up to a baboon and whispering, hey, you can be like God. Or a crocodile, you can be like God. Not only are they going to regard you with complete indifference, but they're just going to stare at you, maybe burp you know, from eating and their indigestion, but you're going to have a hard time not laughing, looking at another animal and saying, hey, you can be like God. Now, I think this is true for every animal out there except for maybe cats, because if you know cats, they seem to want to be like God. Have you ever noticed that? So I'm sorry, all you cat lovers out there, but, you know, cats might be the one exception to what we're talking about here. But if you whisper in a human being's ear, you shall be like God. Deep inside of us, we believe that somehow, somehow, that's what we were made for. So God allows it to happen. But on the other hand, idolatry results because of the extraordinary vulnerability that human beings have that make us feel powerless. When we feel like we have no power, we will worship anything that we think will give us power. So without the garden, without access to the tree of life, 
Adam and Eve would have succumbed to their own creatureliness. They would have died. They needed God's protection in the garden. They needed the tree of life. Why? Because ultimately human beings are made from dust. We're fragile. Every other creature in the world has an ecological niche for which it is uniquely adapted, often exquisitely so. But human beings' natural adaptation is ill-fitting to say the least. Think about this. We are far slower than the fastest predators out there. We don't have nearly as good a sight as many other animals out there. Our hearing in every other sense compared to countless other animals is not nearly as good. We are equipped with a digestive system that's a jack of all trades but master of none kind of thing. Our bodies in so many ways are not as good as those of other creatures. Just on Friday morning, I was coming down to the church from, from our house. I've never seen this before. There was a bald eagle flying around outside of Lycoming Field. As I was coming down the, uh, the road from our house to the, to the uh, church here, I didn't even see it. But this huge bald eagle flew down in front of me on the road and with one of its claws grabbed a squirrel, picked it up into the air, and off it ran. Not ran, off it flew. I've never seen anything like that before. Now, that squirrel was almost right in front of me, and I didn't see it. There's this eagle from who knows how far up. Its eyesight was so good that it could see it. Now, thankfully, I see it on the road because I was like, oh, you know, watching this thing go. Oh, it was crazy. Our abilities as humans, they're, we're not nearly as good or fast or strong as other creatures. So in so many ways, we human beings, you'd, you'd think we were colossal failures. Except for one thing. We're not able to adapt biologically, but we are able to adapt culturally to our environment. Through our cooperation and our creativity to almost any environment that we find ourselves in. So to us, us unique biologically vulnerable, culturally agile creatures, God breathes God's spirit. And there's our power, church. In our weak, vulnerable state, we gain our agility as God breathes upon us. And it takes the humanness of our dust to experience the life and the breath of God's humble power. Now hang with me on this because this is important. Here's what we do. In our weakness, in our vulnerability, we put our creative capacities to work. But instead of using those capacities to work with God, we use them to make substitute images or idols. And then we try to use the perceived power of those idols to conjure up impossible promises that we will not surely die. So what happens is that the power of the idol we think will not let us die. And that's simply not true. So what you see here is this. Idolatry results from this curious, weird hybrid of God making us both powerful on the one hand to create with God, but also being full of powerlessness on the other. And every single one of us reaches for the apple that we think will make us happy something that we start to give our allegiance and our power to, only in the end to find we don't discover that we own it. It owns us. So we reach and we pursue. And those things that were so good start to become distorted. What's your idol? 
So for some of us, money is a good and wonderful thing. It provides food and shelter and clothing. And it looks good and it is good. But then we reach for it more and more and more and more. And it starts to own us and we find ourselves in debt. And this thing that was so beautiful at one point becomes crumpled and corrupted. And we find ourselves chasing it because we think that's what will make us happy. The good becomes distorted. For some of us, we, we love our job, and it's, it's good, and there's a healthy balance. But for some of us, what started off so good becomes the ultimate source of our identity. And it's all we live for. And somewhere along the line, we start to give our all to it. And suddenly, work obligations begin to trump our kids' events, and sometimes even sleep, and even sometimes worshiping God, because we just don't have time anymore. And we realize somewhere there's been a switch, and we're no longer in control of work. It's in control of us, and the good becomes distorted. For some of us, we reach and we want to do the best we can to be healthy with our own bodies, to be fit and to be healthy, until we start to realize, wait a minute, where did it happen that I'm obsessing about every single thing that I eat? There's always somebody who looks better or is in better shape than me, and we're always comparing ourselves to others, and we can't ever be satisfied, and eventually there's eating disorders and all kinds of other things because we realize we're no longer in control, and the good becomes distorted. And some of us realize it's, it's a good thing and a wonderful thing to, to spend time in games and in recreation. Those dice can be a wonderful thing until we realize and start to think, well, you know what? Maybe I can start to manipulate life itself. Maybe I can get something for nothing. And we start to think, maybe I can use these dice for something like gambling. And we take the little financial resource that we have, and we hope that little financial resource, through no effort of our own, will create something wonderful and we live forever. And it happens once or twice, but then we keep thinking it can happen more and more and more. And the next thing we know, the little financial resource we did have has been used up, and now we keep gambling more so that hopefully we'll get at least enough money to make back what we've already spent, only we never do, and it just continues and continues. And somewhere we realize, wait a minute, I'm no longer in control. It controls me. And for some of us, we're grateful for the drugs that can be in our lives to bring healing and free us from pain and give us a break from the reality we face. But somewhere along the line, we want more and more of that, and it feels so good until the effects wear off. And so we need more of the drug to reach the, the feeling that we once had. But then the effects begin to wear off faster and faster, and so we need more and more. And somewhere along the line, the thing that we were reaching out to to give us a break from reality has now reached out and grabbed us and controls us, and we're no longer in control. The good becomes distorted when we reach for the idols. They start off the same way, just like with Adam and Eve, that we believe the lies. We think, you know what, I won't die if I take this. In fact, I can be like God. Here's the great irony. Idols present the idea that we will have life and be like God, but that's the very mindset that separates us from God. And in the end, every idol demands a separation and a differentiation from the Creator, and that's the problem. Idols do not know how to share. They know nothing of flourishing like God intended. So in this way, idols promise so much at first, and they give a high return at first, only to demand more and more and more to get less and less and less in return, eventually leaving us at their mercy. 
to them the idol maker, us. Originally, we who were image bearers of God, we become as inanimate and mute as statues, unable to love or move or care because of our pursuit of idols. It's a lot, church. I realized that this morning. I wish there was so much more I could say and do on this. But here's what I want to ask you as you think about that and hopefully just start to get our minds around that. To what are we using the power, the humble power God has given us? Are we using it for flourishing or creating idols? Where are we seeking to be like God by playing the role of God, thinking we won't surely die, either as individuals or as a church? What is it right now? You don't have to say this out loud, obviously, but in your own minds, what is it that really owns us and frankly is killing us because we thought we could make it to be like God and in fact find it's now owning us? When I think about and reflect on First Church, I could honestly point to a number of idols because we're human beings. <laughs> there's, there's lots that we can point to. I only want to highlight one for us as we gather here this morning. I think that one of the idols that we as a church struggle with is the idol of success. Because here's the truth for us at First Church. Many of you, truthfully, are successful in lots of different ways. And throughout its history, First Church has been successful. We have been incredibly blessed by God. That is well and good, and we must give thanks for that. But I also think that because of that, we tend to be terrified if we somehow don't succeed. I think for many of us as a church, failure is just not an option. So we shy away from taking holy faith-based risks because we fear failure. Or if something doesn't turn out the way we expect that it should, we don't like that. We deem it to be a failure because we're used to succeeding. It's got to be bigger. It's got to be better. There's got to be more people for this. And if there's not, then we have somehow failed. But the ironic thing is if you dig into any great leader's life or any great organization's life, you will see that at many times they did fail. Because the goal, the goal wasn't to avoid failure. The goal was to be all they had been created to be, to use their unique image bearing for flourishing. And that's always going to require a risk, even a risk willing to fail in order to reach their full potential. Could we be okay with that, First Church? Could we strive for the fullness of God's potential within us rather than just success? And are we willing to risk who we are and who we think we should be as a church to be who God has created us to be? Nobody likes to think of themselves as naked. Adam and Eve didn't want to be naked in the garden, and neither do we. Here we have our wonderful, big, granite building and facility. Here we have our well-established ministries. So we like to think that we're not naked. But here's the thing. When it comes to this humble power that God offers us, it's that humble power that clothes us and covers us in God's grace. Not the building or the well-established ministries or our success. One of the things we notice when people come together for Celebrate Recovery is oftentimes in Celebrate Recovery, when you introduce yourself, you can introduce yourself in one of two ways. You can say, I am a, I am, you know, I'm Matt Lake, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. Or what happens more often is people are encouraged to say, hello, my name is Matt Lake, and I struggle with, and you can fill in the blank. 
pride, envy, gambling, addiction, whatever. What we notice a lot of times, especially people who've been more connected with the church, they will choose to say, I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, rather than admit, be vulnerable in naked truth where we struggle. Because we are fearful of not succeeding. We're fearful of being exposed and vulnerable. The church, where does our true security and identity lie? The clothing of success wears out. It doesn't last. But God's abundant grace lasts forever. I wonder if we just need to pause and admit to ourselves where we're naked so that we can receive God's humble power and grace in our lives and be clothed with that instead. I wonder if in our weakness we can realize that when we embrace God's humble power, really that's when we flourish. Again, I wish we had so much more time on this, but here's what I'm hoping we'll do with this. I hope as we leave today, number one, we'll confess in our own hearts where the idols are. And number two, instead of reaching for those, that we'll reach for God instead to be the image bearers God intended us to be. I want us to flourish, church. I want us to be all God created us to be. So may we live into God's humble power this day. Amen.